Throughout the run of 1984, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard's Kennedy School and the American Repertory Theater co-hosted a series of special panel discussions around questions of surveillance, totalitarianism, and the role of technology in popular uprisings. On March 1st, Marilee Grindle, Edward S. Mason Professor of International Development and former director of the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies, joined ART's Artistic Programs Associate Robert Duffley for a talkback linking the themes explored in 1984 to Grindle's work around the retrieval of memory during an authoritarian period in Latin America. For more information about the American Repertory Theater, visit AmericanRepertoryTheater.org. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Hi, everybody. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, thank you, first and foremost, for coming out to the show tonight. And thank you also for sticking around for tonight's conversation. Um, for tonight's conversation, I'll ask a couple questions just to get things started. And then we'll open it up to questions from you all. And we'll keep it all under 25 minutes. Sound good? Cool. Um, so just to get things started, I know this can be a very visceral and maybe even challenging piece of theater to watch. So. I'm just wondering, given your expertise and your experience, what some of your initial reactions to the show are? I think my most powerful um, reaction is just, oh, <laughs> that was really an incredible, uh, incredible performance, an incredible um, um, play. And uh, it brings so much to the surface. Um, I was very. Two things struck me. One is that I have spent some time looking at um, authoritarian regimes in Latin America and then how those, um, uh, at a certain points in time, were recreated into more just and, and democratic regimes. Um, and I think what struck me most uh, about the uh, um, the play was that it's it's about a society but it's also about individuals who are day by day experiencing um, they're living uh, under this regime of Big Brother they are um, somehow immersed in a reality that we've we've just partially lived with them. And I think mm -hmm. that, that is um, something that's, that's really tremendous. It's, it's not just about something that happens to a, a political society. It's something that happens to lots and lots and lots of, of individuals. Um, the other thing that, that struck me so much was at the beginning um, when, uh, I, I think his name was Ogilvy, was being eliminated, uh, unwritten, unpersoned. unpersoned. Um, and in the case of the Latin American countries um, that I have looked at, we have come to talk about the disappeared. And um, the disappeared are the people who have been unwritten, unpersoned. Um, my own, I, I uh, got quite interested in this topic a, a few years ago, just to bring everybody onto the same page. Um, between the 1960s and w well into the 1990s in some countries, many Latin American countries lived under authoritarian regimes, often military, but not always military regimes. And um, then um, 
through resistance movements, through negotiations, through pacts, through a variety of different mechanisms, those countries went on to, those societies went on to try and establish more democratic, more just and open societies. And so the question is really whether, how those memories of having lived um, the trauma of repression and violence and injustice affects how you think about the institutions and the society that you want to recreate. So it's as if Big Brother has been vanquished, memory is not totally lost, so you can imagine people sitting around a table, Winston and others, thinking, well, what kinds of institutions do we want to create? What kinds of laws do we want to have? What kinds of constitutions? What kinds of agreements do we want uh, amongst each other? I got very interested in this topic a few years ago when I was in Santiago, Chile. And I went to the Memory Museum there, um, which is a museum about the 1973 coup d'etat that overthrew a democratically elected government um, that was then um, um, uh, um, went through a period of, of very great violence um, and um, eventually uh, resistance movement and there was a reconstruction of, uh, of a democratic system um, that came into power in 1990. This museum, as you enter it, you go down a concrete walkway, and the walls come up higher and higher as you move down. And then there's a roof over you, and it's all gray. It's all gray concrete. And as you move down, you have this sense that you're in a cell that has no outlet. You don't have a sense that there's a way to get out at the end. So you're going underground into this kind of prison. The museum itself, which is a, a remarkable piece of, of architecture about memory and about, it's, it's a place for memory. Um, as you go up, there's more, uh, through the various um, floors, there's more and more light until you get to the top where there has been a negotiated agreement to reintroduce democracy. But on the way up, you see the videos of the bombing of the presidential palace. You see the roundup of the opposition. You see the, um, you go through um, and see the artifacts from um, the prisons, including an iron bed where people were tortured. Um, you see the faces of some of the disappeared. And as I was going up, I came to, the, you come to this place, it's, it's like a little alcove that has candles flickering on the, on the floor, and hanging down from it are pictures of the disappeared. Um, and I remember as I went through, I just had this unbelievable experience of realizing that this was my generation. Um, I knew that, but 
you know how sometimes you know something, then all of a sudden you know it in a very different way. And I, I just stood there and realized that these, this was a whole generation of mostly young people who never had a chance to develop careers. They never probably never had families. They didn't get a chance to make their mark on the world. They didn't have a chance to you know, know the joys of grandparenthood, which is something I'm experiencing right now. And, it, and, and I just stood there and cried. Um, because this was, in a sense, it was Ogilvy, mm -hmm. um, but, but hundreds and hundreds and thousands of Ogilvy. And this happens not just in Chile, but in a whole variety of, of, uh, uh, of different countries. And so when I came back to Cambridge, I sat with my colleagues and said, you know, let's think about the relationship between memory and democracy. How do you, how do societies take the memories from the past, particularly the unjust past and the repressive past, and turn that into some kind of consensus about the forms of politics, the institutions that um, we, we would like to live in, live together with. And um, what was, for me, remarkable, remarkable about the discussions that we started having was how how many different disciplines and perspectives added to this. There's obviously you know, history and political science and journalism and sociology and psychology, um, but there's also art and theater and architecture in terms of public spaces for memory. You think of the Vietnam Memorial and just the kind of impactful space that that is. Um, in science, um, you think of forensic medicine, forensic anthropology, and um, you know, people who know about how the brain captures memory and, and allows, you, allows us sometimes to recall it. So there was this tremendous capacity to bring people together across boundaries to talk about, uh, about these issues. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. Um, we had a, uh, organized a whole variety of events around it. But um, this, in some ways, coming back to 1984, what came out over and over and over again was how complicated memory is. Mm -hmm. That your memory is not the same as my memory, your experience is not the same as mine. How can we have lived through a period of injustice and repression, but come out of it with, with very different perspectives, and then how, you know, can we successfully pull that together in a way that allows us to face up to the, to the sins of yeah. the past um, and not get lost in them, um, but go on to create something, something better. And I think, that's, um, I think that's where the play leaves us, is thinking, is it possible that there's memory after this and what would that memory tell us about a kind of society that, that we might all want to live in. Mm -hmm. Knowing that we would be having this conversation tonight about memory and democracy, I was watching the show and it really struck me tonight that in the world of the party, there's neither memory nor democracy. There's very pointedly mm -hmm. neither and Orwell tells us that this world exists in this kind of horrendous continuous present. And I was wondering if you think that democracy requires inherently some sort of 
memory collectively or some sort of consensus about where the society has come from? I mean, democracies are created. Um, and some are being created now. It's a long-term process. I think it is important that there be the kinds of discussions that draw on the past, um, that draw on a, on, a, uh, on a perhaps a communal kind of past, but that also draws lessons from it about how things might, might be improved. Um, I, um, one, of the, one of the problems, I think, is that, um, you know, what do we, the, the question is, what do we, um, what do we decide to remember? Mm -hmm. What do we agree that we can remember together? Um, how do we pick out of the multiple memories, how do we pick out the ones that are most important? How can we avoid, if, if we're coming from a past of repression and injustice, how can we end up creating something that isn't just about vengeance, um, that isn't just about um, um, uh, the, the um, that in a way is, is obliterating that past yeah. um, in, in a new present. So it's a very, very difficult process, and I think some societies have been able to do it, and some societies are still struggling with it. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about the differences between a kind of consensus um, when we're looking at the collective memory, and when a body politic undergoes some sort of experience of collective violence, how have you seen in your research that that impacts the way a culture remembers maybe where it's come from or where it even is. Well, that's, I think that's a process of discussion and debate in a society. It, it, I guess, goes back to a question of who writes history and how do you decide on what, on what history is. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that has come up again and again. Um, a question, where, where do you begin with memory? The Memory Museum in Chile begins in 1973. Well, there are people in Chile who would say, well, you have got to go back to before 1973 if you want to understand what happened in 1973. That was not accepted, um, and yet there's still a fissure in that society about what, what's the appropriate memory and what are the lessons from it. it some societies have not been able to um, to, to come to terms uh -huh. um, with, and, and therefore they don't have a memory museum because they haven't decided what, what are the memories that need, it, need to be preserved and agreed upon. Um, well, as we've been comparing our world to the world of Big Brother throughout this discussion series, one of the themes that we've tried to focus on is this question of individual responsibility. So. What acts of maybe individual memory do you see as having been successful in sparking uh, these institutionalized forms of memory? What can individual people do to remember? Um, I guess thinking about that, my sense is that as individuals responding to, reacting against a very difficult past, a difficult moment in time, what you have to do is build 
that into a collective memory so that you have to go beyond what it is that you remember um, to work with others um, to, to build something beyond your, your own experience um, that comes to represent, if not the entire history, at least a, um, a, a, a broad consensus on what went wrong, um, why these things happened, what we're going to do about it, and the, why we don't want this to happen again, mm -hmm. um, what we're going to tell the next generation who didn't experience this, who don't have this memory. So I think it's, it's taking individual memory and making it part of a collective understanding of what has happened in a society. And those are all obviously questions that Winston and Julia don't get a chance they to don't get a chance answer, to, maybe even no, ask. No, I mean, I, I, you know, coming back to the play, I guess the hardest part for me to kind of accept is that memory can be obliterated. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, uh, that, that takes a kind of imagination that, um, I'm resi I resist that part of the play that you can actually destroy um, not just an individual's memory, but a, but a societal memory. And that difference is maybe a source of hope? I, I would, uh, yes. <laughs> well, I want to make sure we have time for questions from the audience. So if you have a question, just do me a favor and raise your hand so I can bring you the microphone and we can include you on the podcast. So we'll start right here and then I'll head this way. Yeah, I think I was curious because one of the things that you're not only losing the past, but you're losing the future. In, in 1984, there was only the eternal present. Mm -hmm. And we tend to talk about the memory, but there's also this sense of the future that's gone. And I think that also happens in an authoritarian regime is there's, it's all, you become the eternal present. And so you're not only regaining, trying to regain the past, but trying to regain a, f a future. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm wondering how that kind of thing has worked itself out in the South American post-authoritarian era. Well, once again, I think it, 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 it really does have to do with people coming together and, and, um, and talking about um, what a um, creating the, you know, the, the image of, of, uh, of a better present and, and a better future. Recognizing that it doesn't happen overnight, that it, it's a long, difficult um, process that doesn't always move forward. Sometimes it, it moves. I, in, in thinking about um, coming this evening, I got to thinking about, you know, what, what are some of the things that, you know, I, I would think that our society in the United States has not really come to terms with slavery uh, as a historical memory of violence and repression and injustice, um, the treatment of the Native Americans. So I think, I think we're always trying to come to terms with the past, hopefully, in an effort to create um, a, a more, um, a more just future. Uh, I'm not sure we're in a particularly good moment for that right now, Mike. 
also, I think we also are at odds with the past that there are people that interpret it one way and exactly. interpret it another way. Yep. A lot of people would rather return to their part of the past, not exactly. realizing there are other parts. Yep. Hello, uh, thank you. My name is Brooke. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, so I sort of have a question and a comment. I should probably start by saying I sort of disagree with you. I had this course on um, thinking, and scientists who are working on memory know that it's not something objective. Every time we revisit something, we are recreating the memory, which is different from the last time, that people who have not been who have committed, who have not committed crimes, but have been persecuted because somebody thought that looks, you know, that person looks like the criminal, or I don't know, the rapist. And so society together bears a brunt for this. And secondly, I wanted to say that the U.S., for example, I don't see any reason for a sort of moral superiority here because U.S. does memory distortion as a political technique all the time. I mean, this continuous torture going on, President Obama agreed to it. 25% of the world prisoners are here in this country, but it only has 5% of the world pop sorry, population. I mean, I don't know what you have to say about it. Please go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you make excellent, excellent points. Memory is not an objective thing. We all... Um, internalize our experiences in different ways. And one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating in this project that we did on, on the, the relationship between memory and democracy in Latin America was how contentious memory is, simply because we remember differently and because our experiences from one person to another or one place in the country um, is different. Um, in terms of um, you know, efforts to, to write history or to rewrite history, clearly that's going on all the time. It's going on in, in this country, it's going on um, in, in societies around the world. And I think as, as we think about recreating or creating democratic institutions, I think one of the things we have to think about is how to, how to try and set limits on that, how to make sure that there are free, as, that flows of information are as free as possible, that the media are um, un, un, unchained, um, that we have access to different sources of, of, of information, and I, I think it's, it's institutions that create that possibility. So if we're in a post-1984 world or in a post-authoritarian Latin America, we have to think about what kinds of rules and laws and constitutions make it possible to create barriers so that no one, including the state, captures history fully. Um. Nineteen forty-nine. So when I think about this, it's about it's very close related to what was going on during World War II and what countries were doing, you know, in order to win the war, and at the same time, the advent of the the Cold War era uh, after that. So I guess. Every time somebody says 1984, that was not the time period that the playwright was writing the yeah. play in. 
No, I, the, the, the play really, I mean, Orwell is talking about Stalinist Russia and Nazi Germany. Um, and, and I think one of the significant differences between what he was writing about and what I have looked at, for example, people who have looked at more, have looked at authoritarian regimes, is that in, in those historical moments, um, there were efforts by the party or the regime to make the private public so that um, people were mobilized, they were organized, they were put out in public. Private thoughts were not, were, were not to be. You had to, you had to uh, uh, adopt an ideology. The authoritarian regimes in Latin America have, have been quite different in that they have pushed people back into the private. They've, in a sense, tried to depoliticize people, keep them out of the political arena. What Orwell was showing was people being pulled into the political arena and taught to think in a certain way. Um, whereas, and, and so I think there is a, a significant difference. But, you know, 1949, he wrote this. Um, how much he must have digested of what went on in Nazi Germany and, um, uh, and Stalinist Russia. Um, uh, to be able to write that um, just four years after the war, I think it's pretty amazing. I think we have time for one more question over here. Thank you. Um, I grew up in Brazil, and I grew up hearing about all these stories of the dictatorship mm -hmm. and the disappeared, and that was a big part of the stories that I grew up. I didn't live it so much, but I grew up hearing those stories, and lived part of my life here in the U.S. And I was wondering, with your knowledge of the period in Latin America during the dictatorships and authoritative governments, the period in Latin America after the authoritative governments, and the U.S. today, if you, it's, I think it's easy to compare what we see here to an authoritative government. So we go to Hitler, we go to Stalin, we go to all these. Do you see that these, it's so different from the government that we see here today, or even that you see in, co in countries that are not, don't have an authoritative government? If lots of these things of pulling away from the politics and the alienation of people and with different methods is still applying, or how do you see that? Or that barrier, you know, after the authoritative government, then we have relief if you really see that that's actually what's happening, or does it continue in a different way? Um, and I, I um, such a big question. Um, I, I do think that, I mean, I, I, that can be very, uh, our democracy in the United States is very imperfect, and it is, I think, going through a very, very difficult time, and there are some real challenges, and I'm not sure how things are going to work out. Um, on the other hand, I think there are some very real differences when the power of the state is used systematically to repress dissent and to, um, um, to, to control um, and, and use violence as a, as a systematic societal, a, a systematic way across society to, um, 
keep people out of voicing opinions, having opinions, having a say in, in what is going on. So I, I, I certainly don't want to stand up and, and wave the flag, but I think there are some very significant differences between an institutionalized democracy that has some issues and an authoritarian regime um, in which the power of the state is used for um, really as a, as, a, as a mechanism of full control. Well, I think that's all the time we have for tonight, but I want to thank you so much, Dr. Grindle, for joining us this evening. My pleasure. <laughs> thank you all for staying with us as well. Thank you.